Chapter 32 of Captain Antifer by Jules Verne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. Chapter 32 What did all this mean if Antifer had not gone mad? During the following days he resumed his walks on the ramparts and along the harbor, smoking his pipe and grinding away at his pebbles. He was no longer the same man. A sort of sardonic smile was stereotyped on his lips. He made no allusion to the treasure, nor to his travels, nor to the final expedition which would enable him to put his hands on the much-sought-for millions. Tregermaine and the others did not return to the subject. Every moment they expected Antifer to give them their marching orders, but he said not a word. "'What can it mean?' asked Nanon. "'A change has come over him,' said Jewel. "'Perhaps he is afraid of having to marry Miss Zambuco,' suggested the bargeman. "'But that does not matter.' It will never do to leave all those millions there. If Antifer's opinions had changed, it was evident that Tregomain's had. He it was who was now seized with thirst for gold. And yet he was logical. When they did not know if they would find an island, they went in search of it. Now that they knew where the island was, why should they not be off? Tregomain was constantly talking to Jewel about it. What is the use? asked the captain. He spoke about it to Nanan. Bah! said she. Leave the treasure where it is. He spoke to Enigate. Look here, my little one. There's more than a million to put in your pocket. Well, Mr. Tregermaine, there's a kiss for you, and that is worth more. At last he resolved to mention the matter to Antifer, and a fortnight after the last scene, he did so. Ah, there's that, er, that, er, island, er, um, what island? The island in the Mediterranean. It exists, I suppose. Exists? I am more certain of its existence than I am of yours and mine. Then why do we not go there? Antifer's reply was so oracular that Tregomaine tried in vain to understand it. But he was not discouraged. After all, the millions were not for himself, but for the young people who were not thinking of the future. He would think of it for them. And so he persisted, and one day Antifer said to him, So it is you who want to go? Yes, I want to go. Your opinion is that we ought to go. We ought to go, and better today than tomorrow. Very well, let us go. But before starting, it was necessary to come to some determination regarding Zambuco and Ben Omar. Their positions as co-legatee and executor required that they should be present at the discovery of island number four and they were invited to be at the island on a certain day, the one to take his share, other to take his commission. Antifer would have everything done in order. Two letters were sent, to Tunis and Alexandria, making an appointment for a meeting to take place on the 23rd of October at Gergenti in Sicily, the nearest town to the island. Turkabel's share would be sent to him in due course, and he could do what he liked with it. Throw it into the Firth of Forth, perhaps, if he was afraid of it burning his fingers. When the voyage was decided on, no one will be astonished at Tregomaine having to be one of the party. What is more surprising is that Anagate had also to go. Jewel had only been married two months, and he would not consent to leave his wife behind. How long would this new exploration last? Not long. They only had to go and return. They had no fifth document to search for. It was certain that Kamalik Pasha had not added other links to the chain of islands, which was long enough already. No. The statement was definite. The treasure was under one of the rocks at island number four, 
and this island was mathematically placed between the coast of Sicily and the island of Pantellaria. Only it cannot be of much importance, for it is not marked on any of the maps, said Jewel. Probably not, replied Antifer with a grin that would have done credit to Mephisto. Really, it was incomprehensible. It was decided to go by the shortest road, which was the railway. There existed already an uninterrupted line of rails across France and Italy, from St. Malo to Naples. Expense was no object, considering the millions that were in view. On the morning of the 16th of October, Nanon bade goodbye to the travelers, who started by the first train. At Paris, where they did not stop, they took the fast train to Lyons, crossed the Franco-Italian frontier, saw nothing of Milan, or Florence, or Rome, and reached Naples on the 20th of October. Tregamine was as confident of the result of this new expedition as he was exhausted by a hundred hours of shaking in a railway carriage. Leaving the hotel in the morning, Captain Antifer and his companions took passage on a steamer sailing for Palermo, and after a fine day's crossing, landed in the Sicilian capital. Do not imagine that there was any talk of visiting the local attractions. This time, not even Tregamine thought of bringing away a fugitive remembrance of this last voyage, nor of piously assisting at those Sicilian vespers he had heard of. As far as he was concerned, Palermo was not the famous city captured in turns by Normans, Frenchmen, Spaniards, Englishmen. It was merely the point of departure of the public conveyances, which run twice a week to Corleone in nine hours, and from Corleone to Girgenti, also twice a week, in twelve hours. It was at Girgenti that our travelers had business, and it was in this ancient Agrigentum, situated on the southern coast of the island, that they were to meet Zambuco and Ben Omar. This means a locomotion might be subject to certain incidents or accidents. The post roads are not very safe. There are still brigands in Sicily. There always are. They flourish like olive trees or aloes. But nevertheless, the coach started next day, and the journey was accomplished without adventure. They reached Girgenti in the evening of the 24th of October, and if they had not reached their goal, they were at least very near it. The banker and the notary were already there one from Tunis, the other from Alexandria. O oh, inextinguishable thirst for gold, of what art thou not capable? As they met, the collegates exchanged but these words. Sure of the island this time? Sure. But what a sarcastic tone was Antifer's reply, and what an ironical look he had in his eye. To find a boat of some sort at Giganti was not difficult. Fishing boats there are many, and coasting vessels also. Balancels, tartans, feluccas, sparinaires, and every other sort of Mediterranean rig. Besides, all they wanted was a short excursion on the sea, a mere trip of forty miles or so to the westward. With a fair wind they could start that evening, and in the morning would be so near their island that they could land there before noon. The boat was soon engaged. Her name was the Providenza. She was a felucca of about thirty tons, commanded by an old sea-wolf, who in spite of his fifty years still frequented these parts. And well he knew them. With his eyes shut, he could take a ship from Sicily to Malta, and from Malta to the coast of Tunis. There is no need to tell him what our business is, said Tregomain, and Jules thought it prudent not to do so. The name of the captain of the Felucca was Jacopo Grappa, and it was fortunate for the travelers that he knew enough French to understand it, and make himself understood and the travelers were fortunate in another respect. It was October. There were a thousand reasons for expecting bad weather, a heavy sea, a cloudy sky. 
But no, the cold was already perceptible. The air was dry, the breeze blew from the land, and when the Providenza set sail, a magnificent moon poured its rays on the high Sicilian mountains. Grappa's crew consisted but of five men, enough for handling the felucca. The light bloat flew over the quiet sea, a sea so quiet that even Ben Omar suffered no disturbance. The night passed without incident, and the dawn announced a superb day. Antifer's behavior was astonishing. He walked about the deck, hands in his pockets, pipe in mouth, affecting perfect indifference. Tregermain, in a great state of excitement, could hardly believe his eyes. The bargeman had taken up his position in the bow. Enigate and Jewel were side by side, Enigate enjoying the charm of the voyage. Ah, why could she not follow her husband wherever the chances of his sailor's life would take him? From time to time, Jewel would stroll up to the steersman to see that the Providenza was keeping on her course due west. At the rate at which she appeared to be going, he reckoned that she would be at the desired place about eleven o'clock. Then he would return to Enogate, a proceeding which once or twice brought him an admonition from Tregamate. Do not devote so much attention to your wife, Jewel. Give a little to our business. Notice that he said, our business. Oh, how he had changed. But was it not in the interests of his young friends? At ten o'clock there was no sign of land, and in fact in this part of the Mediterranean, between Sicily and Cape Bon, there is no island of importance except Pentelaria. But they were not seeking an island of importance, nothing but an islet, a simple little islet. Grappa could not understand why the felucca was put on this course. Were his passengers bound for the coast of Tunis? But it did not matter to him. They had paid him well to go west, and he would go west as long as they asked him to. Are we to go west all the time? he asked Jewel. Yes. Very well. At a quarter past ten, Jewel, sextant in hand, took his first observation. He found that the felucca was in latitude 37 degrees 30 minutes north, and longitude 10 degrees 33 minutes east. While he was at work, Antifer looked at him sideways and winked. Well, Jewel? We are in the right longitude, and we have to drop a few miles to the south. The drop a few miles, nephew. Drop. I fancy that we shall never drop enough. The fluka was put on the port tack so as to approach Pentelaria. Old Grappa, with his eyes screwed up and his lips pressed together, was lost in conjectures, and when Tregerman came near, he could not help asking him, in a low voice, what they were looking for in these parts. A handkerchief we had lost here, replied the bargeman, as if we were getting out of temper. If so excellent a man could do so. Very well, senor. At a quarter to twelve, there was still no mass of rocks in view, and yet the Providenza ought to be on the site of island number four. Nothing. Nothing as far as the eye could reach. Joe went up to the starboard shrouds of the masthead. From there he could see for twelve or fifteen miles around him. Nothing. Always nothing. When he returned to the deck, Sambuco, flanked by the notary, approached to him, and in an anxious voice asked, Island number four? It is not in sight. Are you sure of your position? asked Antifer in a jeering tone. Sure. Then it would appear that you no longer know how to take an observation. Jewel flushed with anger, but Enigate calmed him with a supplicating gesture. Tregermain judged it wise to interfere. Grappa, he said. Signor, we are in search of an islet. Yes, Signor. Is there an islet anywhere near here? 
An island? Yes. Do you mean an island? An island, said Antifer, shrugging his shoulders. Yes, an island. A pretty little island. An island. An icky little eyelicky of an island. Do you understand? Excuse me, Excellency. Are you really looking for an island? Yes, said Gildas Tregamane. Does one exist? No, Signor. No? No. But there used to be one, for I have seen it, and landed on its surface. Its surface? repeated the bargeman. But it has disappeared. Disappeared? exclaimed Jewel. Yes, Signor. Thirty-one years ago, come San Lucia. And what was this island? asked Tregamane, clasping his hands. Why, said Antifer, it was Graham's Island. Graham's Island? What a revelation to Jewel. Yes, it was Julia Island, or Graham's Island, or Hotham's Island, or Ferdinandia, or Narita, whichever name you please, which had happened on this spot on the 28th of June, 1831. What doubt could there be as to its existence? The Neapolitan Captain Carraro had been present at the very moment of the submarine eruption which had produced it. Prince Pignatelli had observed the column which burst in the center of the newborn island with a continuous light as if it were a firework. Captain Ireton and Dr. J. Davy had been witnesses of this marvelous phenomenon. During two months, the island, covered with ashes and hot sand, could be walked over. It was part of the seabed which plutonic forces had raised above the water level. In the month of December 1831, the rocky mass had sunk, the island had disappeared, and this portion of the sea had retained no trace of it. During this lapse of time, so short, ill luck had led Kamalik Pasha and Captain Zoe to this part of the Mediterranean. They sought an unknown island, and they found one, which appeared in June, and vanished in December. And now it was fifty fathoms down that the precious treasure lay. The millions which Turkomel would have hurled into the sea had got down into the sea of themselves, and would never be spread over the world. And Captain Antifer knew this. When Jewel, three weeks before, had given him the position of island number four, between Sicily and Pantellaria, he had at once recognized it as Graham's Island. When he was a youngster at sea, he had sailed in these parts, and knew all about the double phenomenon in 1831. The appearance and disappearance of an ephemeral island, now 300 feet below the level of the waves. When he had satisfied himself of this, after a fit of anger, the most terrible in his life, he had made up his mind to give up all hopes of ever obtaining the treasure of Kamalik Pasha, and that is why he had not spoken of resuming the search. If he had consented, under Tregamine's insistence, if he had plunged into the expenses of another voyage, it was only for his own self-esteem, to show that he was not the greatest dupe in the matter. The appointment he had made with Zambuco and Ben Omar was to give them the lesson which their duplicity toward him so well deserved. Turning toward the Maltese banker and the Egyptian notary, he said, Yes, the millions are there, under our feet. If you want your share, you have only to die for them. Come, Zambuco. To the water, Ben Omar. And if ever these two regretted their acceptance of Antifer's invitation, it was when he overwhelmed them with sarcasms, forgetting that he had been as keen as they were in the search of the treasure. And now for the eastward, said Antifer, and for home. Where we will live so happily, said Jewel. Even without the millions of the Pasha, said Enogate. We shall have to do without them, added Tregamane, in a tone of comic resignation. And meanwhile, the young captain, out of curiosity, asked for a sounding to be taken. 
Grappa obeyed with a shake of the head. When the line had run out to a little over three hundred feet, the lead struck a resisting mass. That was Graham's Island. That was Island Number Four, lost at this depth. At Joel's orders, the felucca wore into the wind. The wind being ahead, she had to beat to windward all night, and the morning was well advanced when the Providenza moored alongside the quay at Gergenti after this fruitless exploration. But as the passengers were taking leave of old Grappa, he said to Antifer, Excellency, what is it? I have something to say. Speak, my friend, speak. Signor, all hope is not lost. Antifer drew himself up, and it was as though a look of supreme covetousness illuminated his glance. All hope, he answered. Yes, Excellency. The island disappeared toward the end of the year 1831, but... But? It has been rising ever since 1850. Like the barometer when fine weather is coming, said Antifer, with a loud shout of laughter. Unfortunately, when it appears with its millions, our millions, we shall not be here. Not even you, Tragamine, unless you die a centenarian many times over. Which is hardly probable, replied the bargeman. But it is true, as the old sailor said. The island is gradually rising to the surface of the Mediterranean, and a few centuries later it may be possible to have quite another ending to these wonderful adventures of Captain Antifer. The End End of Chapter 32 End of Captain Antifer by Jules Verne Recorded by Joe DeNoya Somerset, New Jersey